0: Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. I'm very happy to be speaking into my new microphone for the first time. It's a Shure SM7B. No, they're not sponsoring the podcast, although it sounded like it for a second. I was just interviewing Patrick Seitz uh, with my gauge large diaphragm condenser and it's a great mic. It's been the primary mic in my crafty little home studio for a long time. But while I was doing the interview, my Shure SM7B landed on the front porch. So I ran out to get it and plug it in. I sound like a nerd. My Shure SM7B showed up on the front porch. But anyway, it's it's significant because this is a great microphone I've wanted for a while. And I've been saving up Guitar Center gift cards uh, from students from Christmas and... Things like that. So I've saved up some gift cards over the last few years, and I was just looking in my wallet the other day, and I thought, you know what? I have just about enough to get this microphone. So, so I did. Here we are. Let me know how it sounds. What's new with me? Uh, my band just dropped a new track. It's a Fleetwood Mac cover. Gold Dust Woman in the Chain. We call it Gold Dust Chain. If you haven't heard it, it sounds something like this. she make you cry make you break down shatter your illusions of love and is it over now do you know how pick up the
1: pieces and go
0: home and it's out on streaming platforms everywhere go check it out i am now on patreon as both an artist and podcast host Patreon is a great way to support your favorite creatives with a small monthly donation so that they can continue to do what they love and give their gift to the community. In exchange, artists offer exclusive perks to their patrons. I, for one, have fully produced songs that are only available on Patreon. I'm also starting to put up explanations on my chord progressions, lyrics and production style, offer big merchandise discounts, have exclusive intimate live streams, and all kinds of other fun stuff. I've got big plans for my Patreon page and for less than the price of one cup of coffee per month. One last thing before we get on to today's guest, big news for middle-class rockstar. I mentioned it last week as well, and it's directly involving last week's guest, Chris K. As of a couple weeks ago, middle-class rockstar has teamed up with Chris Kay's Colorado Playlist, a weekly show about everything Colorado music. The show gets aired, 52 hours per week across 25 unique FM stations statewide. Every week, an eight-minute segment of this podcast will be aired on the Colorado Playlist. I am very excited about this. Chris has been a buddy and mentor of mine since I first started putting out music, and it's absolutely wonderful to be able to work with him on this. If you're unfamiliar with Chris Kay's Colorado Playlist... Head over to coloradoplaylist.com for more info and show listings. Folks, this is big for the podcast to be reaching some FM wavelengths and expanding a little bit. Chris K has been very generous to uh, allow me to take over his show for seven to eight minutes every week. Uh, If you haven't heard of Chris K, he's been on Colorado radio since 1977 and has been a major player in the scene for local artists ever since then. Okay, on to today's guest. I had a great conversation just a few minutes ago, actually, with Patrick Seitz of the band Whitewater Ramble. They've been a staple here in the Colorado scene for a long, long time and have, and have done all kinds, of, all kinds of things throughout their career. Uh, Whitewater Ramble describes themselves as high-octane Rocky Mountain dance grass. Wow. Whitewater Ramble uses a simple recipe to craft its sound. Start with bluegrass instrumentation, add drums, and finish with a boundaryless approach to grassing up everything from disco house grooves to roots to Americana. I don't know how you could read that elevator pitch and not want to listen to them. (laughs) In 2018, Westward Magazine named them one of the 10 best Colorado bluegrass artists alongside the legendary Hot Rise and Leftover Salmon. In 2019, they were the winner of best music video and most dramatic music video for their song "Hollow" by la music critic awards they've been written about by relics and spot magazine and they've toured with the likes of green sky bluegrass the infamous string dusters and railroad earth in this episode we chat about patrick's upbringing in idaho uh, how he moved to colorado and first discovered the jam scene and bluegrass music and really fell in love with it at the age of 26 after watching David Grisman at the Mishawaka Amphitheater. We also chat about how he could have gotten into this music much sooner in life, had he followed his father's influence. Uh, Joe Seitz is a renowned violinist, or fiddleist, excuse me, that's offensive, my apologies. He's a fiddleist, he's a nine-time national fiddle champion and grand master fiddle champion. And his father was playing growing up around the house. He casually mentioned to me how Jerry Douglas came over for a jam session, but Patrick didn't quite catch on to the music right then. It took him a few extra years, but he's all in on it now. Um, like I said, Whitewater Ramble's been around forever in the scene. And if you if you're in the Colorado scene at all or in the jam scene, You've heard of them. You've been to a show. They're absolutely phenomenal. And uh, I'm so glad that Patrick sat down with me. Uh, We talked about booking agents and growing the band and touring and all, all kinds of stuff. So whether you're an indie artist or a fan of this music or just a casual listener of the podcast, this is a great episode for you. One of my favorite conversations I've had so far. And at the end of the episode... We'll Hear a news track from Whitewater Ramble called Broken Rocks off of their brand new album Pseudonymous. It came out mid February, right before the world ended, so they haven't been able to tour on it. But Patrick tells a great story about this song in particular, where he records it by banging a chain against the concrete outside of the recording studio. Hear about that and more right now middle-class rock star podcast is brought to you by pq mastering patrick at pq mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast for any of your audio or restoration needs go to www.pqmastering.com also narrator music for simple and affordable licensing for sync visit narratorrf.com patrick Seitz, what's happening my friend
2: Hey, not much, man. Not much, uh, like a lot of our musical friends. <laughs>
0: yeah, right, right. None of us are up to much. I, I, it's a pleasure to get to c- cyber meet you, I guess. This is not, we're not in person, obviously, but um, I feel like our relationship has pretty much exclusively been over, over Facebook,
2: yeah, like with a lot of uh, you know musical and other arti- uh, artistic friends, right? A lot of people you kind of follow their paths, and you know a lot of the same people and mutual friends, and so yeah, I've I've known of you through Ryan Sat, so you know that uh, uh, always bridges between where you feel like you kind of know somebody without very personally knowing them. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's it's a fun it's fun community, and it's nice to be able to like you're saying follow people and see what they're up to, and and a big part of the reason why I do this is to Get to chat with those people. Get to know them a little better.
2: Absolutely, Now it's a great idea. I've actually done a few of these with a few other colleagues as well. So I'm not ambitious enough, I guess, to try to bite into it and host one myself. But I love participating in these things, so they're great, man.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, so let's let's uh, go a little bit in chronological order here. Where did you where did you come from? Where did you? What was your childhood like? And how did you first get into music?
2: Uh, well, I, I was born in Idaho. Um, and I was, I grew up in a musical house. My, my father was a, at the, I don't know how many times over now, but seven or eight time national fiddling team. No kidding. Yeah. So he, he actually learned to play uh, fiddle uh, kind of as a, as an, an adult, I'd say probably when he was 18 or 19 and he learned to play fiddle from the same man that Mark O'Connor, the kind of legendary Nashville classical composer learned to play from. Um, so he was learning at the same time. And in fact, he and Mark, my dad's a few years older than Mark, uh, as the older person, I wouldn't say the more responsible person, but he drove Mark as like a 12 and 13, and 14 year old kid around to a lot of the fiddle contests. Wow. Um, uh, so when, when my dad was like 19 or 20, uh, which is kind of crazy to think, cause I don't think he was that responsible back then, like most 20 year olds. But, um, but that was kind of the, the house that I grew up was an Americana fiddle, uh, old time fiddle. Uh, but I completely like was anti all of that. I didn't enjoy that style of music. I didn't want anything to do with it. I was listening to hip hop and, and rap and, and uh, you know, NWA. And I thought that that was just way cooler and, and you know, something I was into. So I was around it and, and exposed to, you know, great Americana acoustic music my whole life. And uh, it wasn't actually until later in life I was uh, on unemployment stints. I'd moved from Idaho to Colorado. Uh, about partway through college, and uh, followed a girl out here. Of course, like a lot of guys, relocate, and move places.
1: Yeah. Uh,
2: but I came out here, and I was actually working for uh, Hewlett Packard doing uh, IT and tech stuff. So I kind of got into that in the late '90s and got to ride the tech boom up a little bit. Um, but I was—I uh, got laid off from HP, and given a big severance package, and I had just recently went to Mish and uh, at the Mishawaka Amphitheater and saw the David Grisman Quintet, and was yeah. like. Wow, that's really cool. I had a lot of friends that were picking around campfires and playing banjos and guitars and mandolins and fiddles and having just my ear in that. I was like, "Wait, I know all this stuff. How do I know all this stuff?" Because I was just exposed to it. It was like the the soundtrack of my of my childhood. So, um, right.
0: and and so to to jump back a little bit to your dad because that's very interesting. First off, what what's his name?
2: Joe Sites.
0: Joe, okay um and is he is he up online does he have music up and stuff like that
2: yeah uh he he and his wife they've got uh uh, somewhere around 180 fiddle students several of which have also went on to to win uh major fiddling competitions and so he's he's kind of now at this point kind of legendary in that competition fiddle scene he's kind of a kind of a big deal in that world you know to me he's just he's just dad and and you know and and but uh Yeah. He's, he's kind of well-known
0: in that circle. That's, that's amazing. And when you said he picked it up at 18, 19, that absolutely blows me away because people say that the fiddle or the violin is the most difficult instrument. uh, (laughs) The violin followed by the French horn is what I hear. And and, uh, you're, you know, to master And I, I own a fiddle, right. I took a, I took a few lessons a few years ago, just for fun to do something that, Take my mind off music, I guess. That was a weird uh, hobby to pick up. But anyway, um, I, I sound like a dying goose every time I play it. Um, and well, it's it's such a difficult instrument um, because you have to hit it right in the right spot for it to be in tune. You don't have a whole fret to be in tune. And it, it amazes me that he picked it up at 1819. It's one of those instruments that's a language. I feel like you have to pick it up when you're four or five years old, but he picked it up at 18, 19 and then had the discipline, not just to play it, but get uh, world-class good at it. I mean, that's, that's crazy.
2: Well, he's one of the traits I think that I, I take a little bit away from him is that uh, he's kind of maniacal about things and hobbies or, you know, any, any sort of things he, he got into um, yep. dives in, you know, feet first and kind of, you know, when I fast forward and think about my own, you know, musical career and being around it my whole life, you know, I I picked up the mandolin at 26, so I was definitely an adult. No music training, no anything other than my ears and the things that I had heard around me and been around my whole life. And
0: yeah.
2: so, same thing. I, I I would just assume the way that my dad dove into it, just face first. And at the time, I I mean, I I would play my mandolin like 20 hours in a day. And go to sleep, and then wake back up, and like do it again for another twenty hours. And I, I imagine that's the same sort of thing that he was doing back then, um, just you know, obsessed with it, right? And and it was yeah. just a period of time for I don't know how he balanced it because he was still like working a job. I was a, a you know a kid. He was supporting the family and still you know working and still you know pursuing this passion of his. Um, so I don't know how he did it. When I picked it up. I, I was, you know, like I said, I was on unemployment from HP. I had a severance package. I had more money than I had ever had when I was, you know, at that age. I think I was like 20, 24, 25 when I started um, and kind of getting into it. So I just sat around. I had nothing to do all day. So <laughs> I was like,
0: <laughs> so you. Had, this was after you came to Colorado and, and you got and checked out David Grisman. And then that made you say, I'm going to pick up the mandolin.
2: Yep. Yep. That made me want to pick up the mandolin. And I, I had a lot of friends. We were going to shows. I was kind of getting indoctrinated a little bit into the, to the, the Grateful Dead culture a little bit. I had friends friends that were big into fish and panic and, and uh, I kind of latched on. I loved leftover salmon before I really even knew what, you know, that style of music was all about. And I liked another Colorado band called Runaway Truck Ram. Um, and so it was really, it was one weekend at Mishawaka Uh, Probably sometime maybe around 2000, 99, 2000, I saw, uh, it it was that same weekend, but Salmon was on Friday, Runaway Truck Ramp was on Saturday, and Sunday was the Grisman Quintet. And uh, I knew all the Grisman Quintet songs in my head, because my dad had played those records my whole childhood. And uh, I was so ignorant to the fact of what was going on, but I loved the music. But all three of those bands are fronted by mandolin players yeah I can remember calling my dad that next week and saying hey dad I think I want to play the dobro and he said oh the dobro that's cool you like Jerry Douglas and I was like I have no idea who that is dad but I just saw this guy named yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my dad's like that's not
2: a dobro and I wouldn't believe him but he's like yeah you gotta you can, like Google it or something you know look it up and I was like oh my gosh that's a mandolin yeah so, that was how ignorant I, I really was to it and how oblivious to the things that were, you know, going on. And then, you know, my dad shared a photo with me of I was probably maybe five or six years old. And in my living room was Baylor Fleck, Jerry Douglas and Mark O'Connor sitting in my family living room, like having a jam session with my dad.
0: <laughs> oh, my it. God.
2: And I I could care, you know, I could care less. (laughs) And you didn't
0: know what a dope bro was. I was a band oh gosh, that's, that's crazy. (laughs) Um, So you, you mentioned the, the dead culture um, and the jam culture in general. What is it about that culture? It's obviously a very contagious culture for a lot of people. What was contagious about it for you?
2: I think the community and the in the fun, everybody was in such a good mood and like, you know, hanging out in the parking lot before um, and, you know, everyone's just drinking and, and enjoying the substances of their choice and enjoying the Colorado sunshine and outdoor music. And it was just a, it was a fun community to, to kind of just go visit for a weekend, you know, and then kind of go back to your, your normal life. And, and, yeah, it was just they had such an appreciation of the music and of the art that they were going to see and, and just the way they would, you know, prop up their favorite bands. And But everybody was just such a, you know, a fan of the, of the scene in general. And while people might love fish more than they like widespread panic, there's still an overall understanding that, hey, this is improvisational, fluid jam music that is going to be organic and different every time. And I, I thought that was always really cool.
0: So is there is there a connection between the the jam, the fluidity of it, and 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 the fluidity and the jam of the people? <laughs> That's a weird way to ask the question, but the way you describe uh, people, and I, I mean I've been to these shows, the way you describe people hanging out at this con- these concerts, it's, it seems very chill. Do what you want, love each other, and d- does the music to you kind of have that that same message?
2: I definitely think it does. I think that it's, it's kind of, you know, musicness without boundaries, um, you know, and it it, without musical boundaries or lyrical boundaries and, and, you know, songs can be about anything and all over the place and complete gibberish and meaningless, but the music could be amazing and giving you something. And so songs could mean completely different things to completely different people and just left open to this interpretation and, and I always, I always personally had such an appreciation of how, you know, people would would interweave songs together and kind of medley their own songs and, you know, and tease this and jam into this and I, I didn't really get it from a musical standpoint. I just thought it was cool. Yeah. And you know, I've always been a musical fan, and I, I I've been to you know hundreds of concerts throughout my life. You know, large pop artists and you know every style uh, of, of music you can imagine. And and I'm like, well, I never saw that at a Nirvana concert. You know, the songs yeah. were long. They played the songs more or less, kind of how they were. There's maybe a guitar solo added here or there, but you know, it sounded close to the record, right? And yeah. all of a sudden, here was a thing where I could go listen to a Grateful Dead studio album, and it sounded nothing like the tapes that you were listening to of of, of the Dead, or you know, same thing with like Panic or Fish, right? Those those same sort of bands. So I was like just mind blown by the fact that. You you could just have such a different experience seeing a band from one show to the next.
0: That's so that's so cool. And you're in the scene now. You're in your mid twenties, twenty six or so, right? And was that when you started playing mandolin? That was your first musical instrument that you took seriously, correct?
2: Yeah, that was my first instrument, and uh, I, I bought a hundred dollar mandolin off eBay, uh, which is pretty classic for something around two thousand, uh, you know, two thousand and one, somewhere in that that time frame. And a uh, hundred dollar mandolin. I bought a Chris Steele instructional video. that's it's still too difficult for me to comprehend, <laughs> yeah. like thirteen at the time, I think. I he did. So yeah, I just sat down and just started like learning. I bought a, a little Grisman book and tried to learn those songs, not knowing they were way too hard for me as well at the time. <laughs> so I I didn't take a traditional path of like learning like some scales or learning some really simple like tunes. I just kind of jumped right into some hard stuff because I didn't know any different. I didn't, you know, I was just figuring it out. So uh, between that and the the Avogadro's bluegrass jam every Wednesday night, I don't think I, I ever missed that jam. Like I went every week religiously.
0: Was that intimidating when you first got, you'd first gone from listening to music and being a fan and then starting to play at a time where that's a late time to start an instrument for most people. I'd say, was that intimidating the first few times you went to Avos to, to do the jam?
2: Yeah, it's terrifying. Um, it, I, I had no idea what I was getting into, and I had no idea the speeds and the tempos in which people could actually play these little songs that I was, like, learning. And, uh, and it just so happened, and it took me years to figure this out, uh, kind of after the fact, but at the time, I was going to that Avogadro's jam. I, I didn't know. I didn't know any different, but there were three national bluegrass bands, that all had members of those bands that were frequent like people at this jam. So the caliber of the jam was literally world-class. And as there were members from, uh, it was the open road bluegrass band that performed for several presidents and is a staple still to this day on like the uh, XM radio bluegrass channel, Acoustic Junction or whatever. They're always playing open road songs. Those guys were all from Lyons and Fort Collins. Um, Yeah. Uh, hit and run bluegrass band was another uh, national touring band that had won the uh the rocky grass band competitions and additionally there was another musician named grant gordy who was living in fort collins at the time yeah later went on to join the christmas quintet <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and he lives in new york and he's he's you know it's an unbelievable guitarist that was like the local jam every week that i went to i had no idea and i just thought the bluegrass was the hardest I mean like, this is the hardest thing you anyone could ever do. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's blowing my mind. And so it was terrifying. It was absolutely
0: terrifying. I <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you've had some great players there. I, I remember once in college I went to I didn't go to the Dazzle Jam very often, but they had a jazz jam and I was doing jazz piano in school. And I went to the jazz jam one night and uh Grant Gordy was the guest host, I think. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. And it just so happened, you know, I was nineteen And it just so happened that every time I took a solo, it was right after he took one. It was just always go guitar, than piano. And I remember stepping off stage going, you know what? I am, you know, 20 years and thousands of hours worse than the next worst player on this stage right now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's really un, unfair, too, because I mean, he's just like, you know, he is just kind of a force of nature and the things that, that he does with with a guitar. He's also a tremendous mandolinist, too. Right. And when I met Grant, he was playing mandolin. I didn't even know he played guitar and I was just like blown away. But the overwhelming thing that I would say about that jam and that group of people that I'm friends with today and follow their careers and, and, and talk to them all the time. Uh, is that they were just so warm and inviting and like I didn't come in with some attitude trying to like like look what I learned or what here's what I can do they they were very nice and, and really tried to include new people into the jam and without that I wouldn't have stuck with it um, that that was a big part of it
0: I think that speaks volumes to the scene and goes back to what you were saying earlier about how everybody is cool and, and does what they do and respects each other I, I think that speaks volumes of of that that music in general
2: yeah i'd spend all week long working on one you know the melody to like blackberry blossom or whiskey before breakfast two very common fiddle tunes that turns out are not that easy a fiddle tune and you probably shouldn't start with them there's probably 20 tunes you should learn before you get to those two right um you know like trying to just jump right into giant steps or something right you know like there's a a pattern to, to build up to but I practice all week long so that I could take that one solo, that one break, and then you know they would like include me and let me do it and, and let me play it and like give a little feedback like, hey, good job. You know they could see how much I was investing in playing.
0: Right. So, they wanted to let you take your slam dunk. You know. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: And then they would throw me under the bus on a few other things throughout the night. Just fall apart. You know. The, the encouragement was really great from from that that entire scene and that entire crew.
0: So at what point did you start to feel like, okay, I can jump up at a bluegrass jam where I don't know who's going to be there. Um, I don't know who's playing, but I can jump up and I can hang.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was definitely two to three years after that sort of just face down at Avogadro's every week and just playing and practicing on my own nonstop, uh, going to like a bluegrass festival. I think the first time I went to Rocky Grass, uh, camped out. And I, you know, I camped out and in, in my kind of campmate right next to me was a guy named Pete Carsoonis, um, a yeah. singer, songwriter, a uh, great friend of mine today. But at the time we were just picking like crazy everywhere and, and uh, meeting people and learning things. And, and that was the first time that I kind of figured out that, like, I, I'm better than I think that I am. I've I've done a, I've progressed a lot and, and, and I'm no longer in, in my Fort Collins jam bubble of these just outstanding musicians. And once I kind of got out away from that a little bit, I started to realize, like, I, I can play. And I do have an understanding because I kind of got given that school a hard knock, so to speak.
0: And what did what did, were you doing for an occupation during this time? Certainly those uh, those checks ran out at some point and you went back to work. Yeah.
2: Yep. Yep. So I, I basically was kind of writing the, uh, the whole dot com thing with uh, HP here in Fort Collins. And so I, I had four different stints with HP all during that time. So they were playing the stock market game. The tech bubble was going up and bursting and going up and bursting. So I, it seemed like I would work for about a year, get laid off with a, with a severance package. Uh, and then the second time I got laid off, I came back to work for more money than I was making before. And then an even bigger severance package the second time. So, it was a really unusual circumstance to be a, a young man with a hobby and now all this time on my hands and I had money to to pay my bills. So, it was, it was like I was kind of on and off for every every year for about this three to four year period there. So, it was very fortunate and that's what helped kind of, I guess, if you pick up a hobby as an adult, you don't have that much time to to invest right. in, which I was very fortunate where I had nothing but time to invest into it. And when I wanted to buy another mandolin, I had… I had money at my my fingertips, but it would run out. And then I would go back to work and then work again for about a year and get laid off. So it was, a, it was a weird time in my life, but it's what catapulted my music career.
0: And where were you mentally at that time? Were you thinking, I'm going to ride this wave so I can eventually become a professional musician? Or had that not occurred to you yet?
2: You know, it honestly hadn't occurred to me yet um, until I, I just, you know, ran into uh, a guitarist i was having a hard time finding a uh, a guitarist i wanted to do things outside of bluegrass i guess um and and, and i didn't really understand the concepts of of improvisation and and i, I met a guy at a uh, another guitarist at a um just like a house party and he was playing these allman brothers tunes and dead songs that like i knew and uh he was just Playing of and he'd be like, play along. And I'm like, how? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and so, you know, he was kind of a gateway into to doing that. And so we played together for the course of a year or two. And then eventually learned enough material and songs. We started doing open mic stuff together. Um, and then that was just for fun and to get a few beers and you know, <laughs> and that sort of thing. And then it kind of progressed to the next thing. We're like, hey, why don't we get a couple of people? We add our percussionist and a bass player. And we were playing a handful of original tunes and a couple of Grisman tunes, a couple of bluegrass tunes. I didn't sing a note. I just played the mandolin and it was it was fun. It was a fun hobby. And I, I think that just the natural progression just kind of keep kept going where, well, maybe we try to get an even better gig. Maybe we try to get one more thing, you know, it just kind of kept going. And then at one point, um, the ball got rolling so hard for me where I think I just got totally addicted to the to the energy of the stage and and the next gig and the and the win of landing a bigger gig or opening for this band and and i can just remember like landing opening spots for bands that i adored like railroad earth or carl denson's tiny universe and and like just like hey we're a, a little local band around town can we open for you like we'll paint yeah. all out with flyers just so we can make our hundred dollars to open for you and their management and booking. And people would say like, sure, sounds great. Like who's going to turn down free promo. Right.
0: Who was was the first one? Who was the first national act you guys got and how was it built?
2: uh, uh, Railroad earth for sure um, was, was the first big thing. We had been uh, just playing around Fort Collins and I think probably the biggest place we had played we had done a, sh- a couple of shows at avogadro's we'd done a couple of shows at, it was uh, linden's at the time that became car o'neill's and then you know went went under but but uh, yeah we just played a couple of like smaller things uh coffee shop gigs all that sort of stuff i personally loved rover earth i saw them in like 2000 or 2001 at telluride bluegrass festival I fell in love with the band i thought how cool fiddles and mandolins, but they had drums. And, and that's what I liked about leftover salmon. And but they had all these great songs. And I literally just sent an email. I sent an email to every web, every email address on the rubber website. I saw they were coming to the Aggie in Fort Collins. And I also copied uh, at the time it was school Leary, the guy that owned the Aggie. I copied everybody. And I sent an email and attached a a kind of a gypsy jazz sort of Grisman-esque type tune I had written, and we had a fairly decent demo recording of it. Yeah. Eldon said, love the band, huge fan. This is what we sound like. I would love to open for you guys. I don't know if you have an opener. We don't want any money at all. This is how naive and how dumb I was trying to like book things. I'm like, we don't want any money at all. We'll hang all your posters and flyers all over town. We have friends. We can help get out to the show. And we just love you guys. And we want to do something to support you. Yeah. I, just, I didn't think anything about it. Um, the first message I got back was from Tim Carbone, who I later became tremendous friends and ended up producing several of our records. Yeah. But it was the first person that replied right back and was like, hey, great song. I really like it. I, I, some, maybe something will work out. But he just, you know, sent a nice little message. And then their manager jumped in. And then I, I'll never forget the email that I got from Scoo. Who said, "I don't, I don't know who the hell you are, or who the hell you think you are. Just reaching out to the bands, asking if you open. But if you suck, you'll never play in this town again." It was one of these like hard worded oh, m- man. Like, like I totally circumvented the process, right? I should have gone to him and I, I, you know, I don't know, whatever. I, I
0: yeah, no- yeah, but it, I mean, we've seen that work both ways, right? Sometimes you go straight to the artist and you get the answer you want. Uh, the venue gets fifty of those, probably.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I got this really harshly worded thing, but at the end of the day, the railroad earth camp said, sure, we'd love to have these guys in the bill. So they paid us a hundred bucks. We got to meet them all backstage, hang out. They were a bunch of gracious, wonderful guys. Yeah. Uh, listen to a little bit of our performance. I think I even asked, I asked uh, either Tim or Andy Gessling to come up and, and sit in a song with us that night, uh, which they did. And they
0: did. Oh, wow. I'm
2: recording of it somewhere. And, and, uh, Yeah, I mean, just, you know, that, and that was it. We played a 45 minute set. That was our first time ever, like, setting up on a real stage with a real, you know, monitor engineer and the whole deal. So we were completely fish out of water. We had no idea what we were doing. And that
0: that was just as a duo? No, that was a full five piece band. That was the full five piece. Okay.
2: Full five piece. We set up our drums. We all crammed together, you know, because, you know, the, you know, headliners don't want to share their backline with you, right? So we set up our own drums and just, crammed up to the front and uh you know just kind of <laughs> like
0: how were how you guys built on that show
2: oh uh, we were whitewater ramble
0: you were already and, whitewater ramble okay we were already
2: I- whitewater ramble, and uh we, the early formations of the band i actually um, i wrote a song at, at sitting off the edge of the stage up at mishawaka um and i called the song Whitewater ramble and we hadn't named kind of our group yet like, we just had, like, four of us at the time that were kind of jamming together and playing, like, stuff around town, really with no name. We were just signing up for open mics. And uh, and then it wasn't until I think we changed our name officially to Whitewater Ramble because I named the song Whitewater Ramble. And somebody said, hey, that's too cool. Like, we should just use that as the group name. So I was like, all right, cool. So that's how we changed it to that. And I think our first show um, as Whitewater Ramble was with Chris K., at uh archers pool hall
0: it was with chris k yeah
2: I'm, I'm i'm almost certain of that i would have to go back and, and really like you know do a history lesson but i'm almost certain that that was the first time and that was as a four piece we didn't have fiddle yet uh and it was percussion instead of drums and so we played archers and that was our our first uh the first time white water rainbow is a name and a full band kind of debuted and so this Rower thing was fast forward probably six months to a year after
0: that. You got on it pretty quick. There's showed some hustle.
2: I was obsessed with it, man. <laughs> I really
0: was. I love it. Hey, and, and real quick for regular listeners of this podcast, uh, the episode right before this one is actually with Chris K. Total coincidence. But so nice. listen to this one and then you don't do anything after the episode's over. That Chris K. episode will start. Nice. <laughs> awesome. Had to plug it. Had to plug it. Very cool. uh, so, so, what was the progression from there? I mean, it's rare that somebody starts a band and stays in. I mean, it's one thing if it's named after their own name or whatever because you d- you decide when it breaks up. But to have to be under a band name, uh, to be collaborating with other people, and to still be that's that's been your project ever since you formed a project. Uh, so there's a lot that's happened with a uh, Whitewater Ramble. Um, How did things start to progress after that? When did you guys first start to uh, try to travel and do tours and things like that?
2: Um, You know, it was honestly not too far after getting, you know, shows like that um, opening for Robert Earth. And one of the things that went very well about that show is the, the time before that, it came through Fort Collins and they played across the street at the Starlight. They didn't have enough of a following yet to play the Aggie. And like 30 people came. Wow. And I remember talking to them and meeting them at the time at the merch table and telling them, oh, this town supports music way better. I'm so sorry no one came and you guys are amazing. They're like, yeah, yeah we'll probably be back, blah, 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 you know. Um, but then when they came back and they played the Aggie, which was like less than a year later, um, we really hustled for them, man. I mean, we put up posters all over town. We hit the CSU campus more times than. You know, we got into the poster wars where one band throws their posters over the next and the next and you're wallpapering the poll every day. And and uh we ended up getting like four or five hundred people came to that show and they were blown away and so like appreciative. I mean, they were growing and getting bigger as well. That was a natural progression for them, but they that at the time that was a bigger crowd than they got in Denver, a bigger crowd than they got in Boulder. And so they really appreciated how much work we did to to get the word out about them. And that also caught the ear of Scoo with the And at that time, I think it was less than three months later, he started offering us opening slots. Right. That same period of time, um, I think we opened for for Michael Frani. We opened for Carl Denson. uh, We opened for Galactic. We opened for like, we were just getting thrown in front of all these spots. And then – he gave us like our own sort of first thing and they started going very well. And we we were able to, you know, sell five dollar tickets and pack that place. And five, six hundred people would come would come to the shows at those times. And we yeah. weren't very good. <laughs> I think we had, you know, we were practicing a lot. We were but we That's were just figuring true. out how to play as a band, you know? And yeah people are coming to the shows and like it it was uh but that that's what got the gears grinding for me um of like hey we should let's try to go down to denver let's try to go here what happens if we drive up to laramie what if we go to these mountain towns so it just became a natural progression where we just started kind of branching out and then there was just a tipping point where we figured out that we can't just keep playing the same towns over and over again and we quickly figured that out that if we were going to be part of the Fort Collins scene we had to stop playing all of the little shows around and you know so the, the the promoters at the Aggie they were like you can't you can't play every corner bar for 100 bucks you need to only play here like once a month and and so we were almost kind of a house band at one point at the Aggie um yeah. either opening for somebody big or we had our own big show and we played there a lot we'd play there 10 eight to 10 times in, in a year
0: Seems like that's kind of your guys' home venue. I, you know, you when you guys do a big show in Fort Collins, it's still at the Aggie a lot of times.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still hometown for us, and 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 quite honestly, it's been a really funny, you know, transition of the band. There's been times where we had out of state venues and, and markets that we had become bigger in than we were at home. Um, these days, most recent days, probably Denver is probably our biggest and best draw, but you know, Fort Collins is always is always home. We usually I always have great, great turnouts, great shows. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a nostalgic sort of thing. And I'm the only person in the band that lives in Fort Collins and, you know, but the beginnings we were all Fort Collins people and, and yeah, it's still hometown. It's where we parked the van and traded. So.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Then that's your hometown. So when you're you mentioning having other markets that were drawing even better than Fort Collins, how did that come to be where, and, and where were those first markets?
2: Well, the first the first things that we did is we kinda like mapped out and and uh you know, I was coming from kind of a, a little bit of a business perspective, um, you know, a business plan and how to spend money and how to, you know, target certain things. And I I was able to ask a lot of other bands kind of how they were doing things and and uh, you know, and how and I'd really watch other bands' tours and where they played. Colorado's incredibly landlocked, right? Any market in any direction is like nine hours, right? Nine hours to Lawrence, Kansas. It's about eight to Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, Wyoming is kind of, you know, is kind of what it is. But to get to Jackson, where there was a a music scene, that's nine hours. Salt Lake City, seven, eight hours. Albuquerque, six, seven hours. You know, just so we're kind of in this isolated area. So we started figuring out like where we could go. So we kind of hit that radius, like a 10-hour radius outside of Colorado. And we just started reaching out and calling and saying things like, Hey, we open for these bands. This is our numbers in Fort Collins. Maybe you'd like to to see us. And so, you know, we go out there, no rooms, no lodging, no food, right. we paid, you know, hundred bucks, 300 bucks. It was a really good gig. Right. You know, and, yeah. and that was kind of the, the deal. So we were sleeping on floors anywhere we could crashing in the van, just, you know, we had a group of guys that early, that early version of Ramble was really into it for the fun. They were really into it for the fun and we were all kind of doing it and growing it together and and enjoying it. So yeah, that's, that's helpful in in getting that and that formation of the band, that earliest formation was really all about that. Like we were trying to be out every single Thursday, Friday, Saturday in a different direction. So uh, one weekend would be like Lincoln, uh, Omaha and maybe like Des Moines and then home. And then the next weekend would be like Lawrence, Kansas, Kansas city, uh, Columbia, Missouri home. Right. And then we would go down to Albuquerque Taos and, and, uh, uh, Santa Fe and then home. And so that was like every weekend. We just kept doing that. And, uh, it was really, it took a lot of time, but we had a game plan. We we're like, if we're going to come, we're going to come back to those same markets within six months.
0: How old were you at this point? Uh,
2: I'm probably 30. Okay. I'm probably 30, 31, 32, somewhere in that range. Um, and, yeah, we were just hitting it hard, I think, in those days. And then, plus, we were hitting every Colorado mountain town that we could get our, our our you know, places into. And so Colorado was going pretty well and growing pretty well for us. Um, and we, we put out a record. This is probably 20... 2007 or 8 and I, I think after we did this for about 2 years we come back and we put out our first studio album and that was Tim Carbone uh, um, you know he produced that record and that kind of really helped us we had a couple of cool guests we had uh, one of the guys uh, Josh Clark, played guitar for Tea Leaf Green was a jam band in San Francisco he was a guest on it we had Steve Mulitz from the, the, the dance band Particle he played yeah. keyboard he also played keyboard at the times with Phil and friends, Phil Ash. So wow. we put some games on there. Carbone produced it. We've been touring. We're getting good now. We're getting good yeah. at our show and what we do. Yeah. And while there's a million better musicians, nobody was better at playing our style than than we were at that time. We were how really...
0: Were you, how are you defining your style at that time? What made it different?
2: I mean, we were just throw down the gauntlet, super, super fast, stupid bluegrass with drums. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> yeah. we had original songs but we also were taking a lot of crazy cover songs on and yeah. people always got down on those and really enjoyed that and that was an identity of the band um but we were like taking like the fastest part of leftover salmon's repertoire and just while salmon's got this major catalog we were like this and just focused it on stupid fast loud in your face throw it down uh bluegrass and uh yeah, so you know, we were messing with other styles of songs, but we were making them fast, loud bluegrass, all of them, and that was kind of our our deal. And uh, we really liked the band called Cornmeal from Chicago that was doing the same thing, and they were bigger than us. And then we got to do some touring with them and do some other things, and so we'd really focus in on that niche. And I guess what we kind of discovered is that when you play really fast like that, it covers up your in, insufficient vocals. And the the need for really great tight harmonies. And, <laughs> sure, and, you know, we were very very immature me as a musician. Like at that time, most of us in in that version of the group were not trained musicians. We were right. people picked it up and and were playing together because it was fun. Um, but it wasn't until we started getting some trained musicians in the band as people kind of came and went and had to step aside for you know family, jobs, whatever. Uh, we started getting some school and educated musicians in the band that were like, hey, 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 whoa, whoa. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Thinking, what is that? That's not with you. No, that we're doesn't.
0: Work. That. We're not doing that. <laughs> yeah.
2: So yeah. It, that all kind of correlates around the same time frame.
0: And now, were there any of these markets that you said you were going out every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and trying to make sure to return within six months, if not sooner? Were there any of these markets that, for whatever reason, what you were doing? whether it was what you were doing or the venue you were playing it at, were there any of these markets that you just couldn't seem to build?
2: Oh my gosh, yeah, there were all, there was way more that you couldn't build than, than that you could, um, it, it, was, it was hit or miss, but because of the way routing went, and I just, you know, I'll give a prime example. Um, we really kind of took off in Columbia, Missouri for a minute, and it was really exciting and fun. They had a nice little club. Uh, could fit between 200 and 300 people called Mojo's. The big theater was right across the street. And uh, within, you know, two or three times going and hitting that town, we caught on with the college there at Mizzou and there was a line out the door and we'd sell 250 tickets. We were blown away. We couldn't believe wow. it. We're like We're not even doing this at home. Like this is right. crazy. Right? And uh, and then we, we got a very large slot on the main stage. They have a big outdoor music festival, um, uh, uh, like uh, blues and barbecue or something like that, and they'd have like headlighters like Taj Mahal, wow,
0: uh, you
2: know, Kev Mo. And we played, we played a set on the main stage, like three, two or three acts before Fitz in the Tantrums. This is way before Fitz had songs in the radio, but they were a touring band that put on a show and were just fantastic. And uh, we were blown away by that. But we were like two, couple acts before them, and then we did a late night set in the big theater. And like six hundred people piled in. It was all included with their wristband and ticket. And so, you know, half the guys from Fitz were like side stage hanging out with us after the show, and we're just like having a great time. And like six months later, they got a huge song on the radio. We're like, holy cow, that's that band!
0: Wow.
2: And we were blowing up in that in that town, and it was it was very interesting because we always had to go through. And we're playing we're playing uh, Lawrence, Kansas. We're playing Kansas City, and Kansas City is a huge town. So there's more to do. It's tougher to break a hard town, a bigger town. I, I felt at the time. Um, we later made a big philosophical change because we were all about college towns at first, and so we had to play towns to get to it. But we could never get anything going in Lawrence, Kansas. We couldn't get anything going uh, in Kansas City. But we had to drive out there to to play Columbia, and then later we started playing St. Louis, and we're doing kind of okay there. Um, but it was an interesting thing. So you'd have to play just a couple of shows and we opened for some great bands in Lawrence and got some good, you know, opportunities. We opened for split lip out there one time and they, they were huge split Lip Rayfield was huge. And from Lawrence, and it just did not catch for us. We were just not that town's kind of band and, and we just couldn't catch on. But, you know, three hours away over in Columbia, we're packing the house. So, <laughs> you know, it's just one of those where we just kept at it and kept at it. And it just would not catch in some places, other places it did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's, in, it's interesting. Um, mm. It's interesting how that happens and touring those college towns too. I sometimes wonder, you know, there's people that come out and they love the show and like, we love you guys. And I just wonder if they going to, they're going to wake up the next morning and be like, you know, we saw a cool band last night. And then, and then move on you know because it's a party town you're in party well, town
2: one way to get past that that we discovered is uh <laughs> we go party with these people we were all we were still looking for places to stay you know yeah, of course so we would be up till five six in the morning at these kids houses just partying down playing music all night every friend that they had that played a banjo a fiddle a mandolin or something we'd just show up and we'd crash in these people's floors And then every time we would come back to the town they'd reach out to us and be like hey i'll hang 100 posters on campus if i can get a free ticket you know can i get a can i get a a poster can i so we started getting that kind of you know that wave that comes back that really starts to kind of help bands is, is people like loving the identity of the band they feel like they kind of know you they've hung out with you and that really helped build a scene but what that also leads to is, and we later had a very dramatic shift, which was hilarious because we started out really trying to get to these college towns and it went very well, but it's exhausting for a couple of reasons. If yeah. you miss a semester, you're all news. You've got to be there every semester. Then, and it's a small window of kids that you get to play to. If you're playing in 21 plus clubs, you're playing to the juniors and seniors, and then they're telling people about you behind you, but they didn't get to go see you, right?
0: Now, can you hang out with these? Can you hang with these uh, with these folks on the drinking front till five or six? You're in your early 30s, and they're in their early 20s. It's not it's not fair. Were you able to hang with them?
2: Well, I mean, see the, the difference was is not only were we able to hang, we became professional partiers because that's what you do when <laughs> you're a party, right? So yeah. we're doing this 150, 160 shows a year, right? they're they're you know they're they're partying and so yeah we we were able to hang and be just just fine it's not the case anymore but at that time we were really hitting it and we were really partying so you know it was it was fun and uh but they you know you get worn out from it but we were young enough and having enough fun that it just the train just kept rolling but if you did not come back to these towns every six months every semester like clockwork You could get lost just like that. You know, they forget about you. Then those kids graduate and they move on. And they, you know, they go wherever. And the other downfall that we also discovered too is one, it was really hard. Anytime we jacked ticket prices, like thinking we were really getting somewhere, the attendance would just plummet. There's students, they don't have disposable income to just, you know, throw away on a band, um, you know, just that they just saw six months ago. Right. Right. Uh, Right. So, you know, unless you brought some new compelling light show or you had a new album or something really interesting, it was hard to maintain that momentum in those college towns. Sure. So you discovered in the long run, you were better off playing the bigger markets because those were people that live there. They're more permanently there. They have more disposable income. They're not scared of a 15 or a $20 ticket. They'll buy a CD, you know, that type of thing. So was great to kind of get the momentum started but the longevity of it um, and this was also some coaching and education working with other bands that we were getting picked up to do some touring dates with like railroad like green sky like uh, the string dusters we we're doing tours with some of those bands and we just we couldn't believe they would just skip the college towns and, and a lot of their management and touring people were like let's go to the bigger market more money more tickets more merch so right Different kind of paradigm shift, I guess.
0: So, and is that is that what you guys do now as as a as a headliner when you tour? Are you trying to aim for those larger markets?
2: Yeah, we usually aim for the larger markets, and honestly, our touring you know these days, like we tour, it, it's always to some sort of festival or some sort of thing. Um, we had. The days of just picking up a 20-day tour, we don't really do that these days anymore. The grind, it got hard to keep a band together. Um, you know, people have to have other means at home of whether it's teaching music or, you know, even if you're a musician and that's all you do, it's still hard to be gone 20 days of the month. Right. Um, if the revenue not consistently climbing up with it, right? So right. You know, it's, it's kind of a tricky thing. So in order to keep a semblance of a band together and keep the players committed and happy we pick and choose but you know there was a period of time i would say from 2013 to 2015 to 2016 that was probably our biggest most popular popular time as a group it was certainly our best revenue years and we were exclusively hitting those big markets that's all we were doing we had abandoned college towns we were college town central from like 2009 to probably 2013 um, and we released our second album, and we, we did a tour with Railroad. It was all big cities across the Midwest. It was the Milwaukees, the Chicagos, the St. Louis, the Minneapolis. And we saw what that did, and we were like, that's it. No, no more. Let's quit at the college towns. We can go charge a bigger ticket. And so we shifted, and that's where we stayed. We never really went back to the college towns unless it was an event or a festival or something, you know, was compelling to, to bring
0: us to the college towns. And, and now as you're mentioning, you guys don't do that quite as don't go out quite as much anymore. There certainly reaches a point for everybody. It might be at a different spot for everybody, but there reaches a point where you, you can't just go out and grind anymore. There has to be some sort of a growth or you have to get to a certain point where you can announce 20 dates and you're coming back and you're feeding your family, then some, no problem. Um, do you guys do you guys feel like there's a certain point where you stopped climbing and do you feel that you want I mean is there still that drive to get bigger um where are you guys at right now
2: Well I that's a, I mean that's a good question I I, I have the I have the drive to try to propel the the group and the band name uh but I've had to kind of look for different ways to do it and there there was certainly a point I think it was 2015 we played about 180 dates in the prior two years released a record um those were our best festival years we were on some big festival bills we were playing larger things doing some really large tours um Mm -hmm. with other bands always as a support band and then we were able to come back and, and make our own money behind that and and the grind, it just, it became a lot. We had several guys in the band. We just hadn't crossed that threshold. And we had guys that wanted to stay home, get married, start families or come stay home, get a more stable job, kind of do what was right to, to make their personal situations right. And we just couldn't do that. We could not do that yet. And we were really close and we were grinding hard. And uh, I, I think that year, I think we, we probably grossed about 300,000 tour revenue that year. Wow. Yeah. And, but it just it wasn't enough to keep everybody whole and as you get bigger and bigger you start also finding out too now you got a sound guy you got a merch person you got a, a manager you got a booking agent uh, you got you know your your social media manager so we had all these pieces that we were adding and by the time you take all those pieces out of the pie and your tour expenses some of those years we were touring gas was four dollars and fifty cents a gallon i think we spent like uh, Eighty or ninety thousand dollars on gas. One one of those years we were touring, yeah, right? Um, so it just wasn't working. And so what we kind of you know did at that time is our our management booking agencies came up with a good plan for us to stay here in Colorado, and we did these residencies where we played uh, cover shows, and we took on a different artist every month or a different theme. And just stayed home, and we just a hundred percent came off the road, so guys could get real jobs, start families, get married, start having kids, and doing things like that. Yeah. So that changed the whole philosophy. And while it was fun, and initially we came home and we were like, "Wow, we have four shows to play all month!" You know, we were playing the same weekend, the first weekend of the month. You know, every month: um, Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins, Frisco, Steamboat. I think that was our our rotation. And, uh, man, the turnouts were great. We were making more money, less yeah. work. Everyone's at home in their own beds most of the night. And we wrote that out for about three years. And, where we still did spot festivals. We still did some summer tour and a few things here and there. But the focus was dramatically different. It was sitting around, rehearsing a lot. We'd never rehearsed so much before. Um, so you had to learn all these songs, and you're trying to cover the police. Let me tell you, <laughs> that's not easy. <laughs> so, oh, gosh. Yeah, so we could cover all these bands and and, and so it was, it was it worked out well. But what it did is it, it just knocked us off of the national map for sure and knocked us off of the regional map. Um, it was nice to be here at home, but that really like settled the band into a much different place. And so the place that we kind of, you know, rose out of that was trying to put together a new album, totally different players, totally different sounds, but focusing more on our online personas and along with that video kind of the you know trying to put out videos and that's been the biggest focus of the band for me in the last like two years we're not doing the touring thing i don't have a band that's built to tour like that i have a bunch of professional musicians in the group but they're all here playing in other projects teaching a lot Um, this is where their businesses are and yeah we can run out and go do a you know run of ski ski town shows um that was our whole spring was was a lot of ski town shows and then some summer touring to support our new album and uh so everybody likes to run up to jackson hole for three nights or sun valley for three nights or big sky or you know and go, go play and, and snowboard and ski um but it's not as intense as like we're in the van for two weeks and then back sure. another two weeks right after that so. And, so,
0: and yeah the cover show is actually one of the things i wanted to ask you guys about because i kept seeing this stuff come up and um you know i'm i ryan ryan sap drummed in my band for a couple of years and and um uh, and then in yours so we've kept in in on in, uh, great terms and close con- uh, close contact and so i would see him post up these things and like, we're doing this this month we're doing this that month and i would just look or text and like oh my god how how did you learn all those police songs or how did you learn all those that you guys did petty one month or something like that maybe yeah. um, w- what was that process really like did you try to make them your own? And did you notice, um, did you notice that you would get Tom Petty fans out to your shows who didn't know who you were, or Police fans out to your shows that didn't know who you were?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there was no question of that. And there, there were some that were there were gimmies. Anytime you play a Grateful Dead tribute show, you know that people that love the Dead are going to show up and come to it, even if they don't even hardly know your band, right? Like that's kind of the gimme here in Colorado. So we did that for sure, but we also did a lot of other things because it was fun and challenging for us. And and so you did see different bands and you did see different people that came out for different shows. Zeppelin brought out a much older demographic than we were used to. that was really cool. Um, The 90s tribute that we did was actually the best-selling and most popular one that we did. Uh, We did did a 90s version 1 and a 90s version 2, And it was, uh, yeah, those were really popular. I I think that just brought out people from that age and generation that wanted to come out and hear those songs and hear somebody do it. And to answer your question, we would absolutely rip these songs apart inside and out one way or another, but not every song. Some songs we just played it (laughs) the way the song goes, but with our instrumentation just gave it a certain different feel or vibe. But some, you know, some songs and some artists are just, the music doesn't lend itself as well. You know, you pick and choose your moments as what, what to do with it and how to kind of disco it or danceify it and do things like that. So yeah. it was a collaborative effort and the process was really fun, but after three years of doing it, it became exhausting because what, what happened is while you're rehearsing and learning one artist's material, you're also having a whole secondary set of conversations. And we used to do conference calls. We'd all jump on a conference call and to choose the next month's songs, we'd already laid out the artists. We'd lay that out like six months in advance. So we knew the artists that were going to be each month. And then about a month in advance, we would have to start rehearsing the next month's stuff. Um, so we're always trying to stay 30 days ahead, but we'd have these conversations about, we got to pick 20 to 25 songs, which ones lend themselves well to us. Everybody listen to them. Everybody kind of digest them. And now let's, pick and choose ones we think we can really dial in and we were rehearsing a couple times a week uh you know three and four and five hour rehearsals I can remember one with the police we had like a six or seven hour rehearsal it was exhausting we were all about ready to kill each other right Uh, difficult man and uh you know and while we love that band it wasn't morphing to uh, to us very well and so we really had to force that one And, and uh but oh man, it was so unbelievable learning all of these different styles, different genres, the different ways that different artists like to connect to their art and how they kind of you know do things. And you could find re- repeatable patterns with certain artists. Um, and others were just so all over the map that, it, that made it even even more fun, right? So
0: did you still feel, feel uh, fulfilled musically? there when you were doing that? When you were saying, okay, we're doing these cover shows. Was there any part of you that's like, oh, we're selling out and doing covers to bring people? Or or did you still feel just as fulfilled?
2: Well, so yeah, so I, earlier we felt just as fulfilled and then, you know, it slowly started to kind of erode and chip away at me as my own songwriter. And those years that we were really touring and doing well, we really made a big shift to stop playing cover songs and focus on our original music. And we saw that translate to success. And, you know, that's what's gonna sell more tickets. That's what's gonna sell more, you know, land you in larger festivals, um, unless you're Dark Star Orchestra or something, you know, on the festival scene, nobody's paying money to go see cover bands in those. They wanna see your original art. And we figured that out. So, you know, I had really gotten into the craft of songwriting and my own voice and, and what worked for me. As, as a writer a an ranger, and a band leader um, that was slowly eroding from the cover shows. And it took a couple of years um, before that really just totally chipped away. I mean, so we, we started trying to do stuff where, where we would like play a first set of our own music and then end with like a cover to then bridge into the cover set. And so that was kind of fun and helping that uh, transition a little bit uh, to, you know, to kind of, to kind of feed that back in. But then uh, I think overall it just became really difficult to handle as a, you know, an artist of your own songwriting and songs
0: Yeah, transition back.
2: And, and then to make matters worse, uh, I, I don't want to say to make matters worse, but we, we, we did that for about three years and then made a conscious decision. We're, we're done with this. Yeah. Well, now we stopped doing those and we started just kind of going back to our normal ski towns, mountain towns, out-of-state festivals, music in the park events, brew fest events. But then the phone starts ringing for, hey, will you guys come play your Grateful Dead tribute here? You know, or hey, will you guys come play your 90s show for us? And we're like, oh, it's really what we're not trying to do right now. I'm trying to be a tribute
0: game, yeah.
2: But, the, but the, the money was more. Um, so we had to make decisions on how to do that. And so I, I can specifically recall booking uh, bookings with a few festivals where we negotiated playing an original set and then playing our tribute set at some point later in the festival sure uh, so that was kind of a, a you know compromise that we had to had to make and kind of had to do but it was, it was a tough pill to swallow um i was proud of the way you know we worked we worked up and released a uh, like a 18 track blu-ray from our zeppelin show at the aggie and sprung for the big lights and sold out the room and it was just fantastic i'm super proud of what we did to that music and with that music yeah but i don't want to play it all the time
0: <laughs> right of course of course and
2: loved it and they call
0: for it all the time so and i think that must be tough too to be given that label after a while you know hey come to your dead show for us like hey man we got great tunes you know right. but and and you were talking about uh a little bit earlier about what you're doing now and kind of trying to develop the online presence and doing videos and putting out original music and you guys have been doing that um in fact you you put something out on fe- was it february 14th of this year
2: Yeah. That was our, our new album pseudonymous. And
0: it it was a, it's a funny release date to me because (laughs) you may, some people felt like the world was going to end and some people didn't at that point, but it wasn't clear. I was, I was still out on the road at that point and you know, like the next week that was it. And so how did you guys deal with that around your album release? Did you have any idea when you put that out that, um, (laughs) <laughs> you know that 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 was going to happen or that you guys wouldn't be able to tour at all
2: and uh, i mean we had no idea and you you know as well as anything that when you're you're, you're putting something out, and, the, and the interesting thing about that record it was almost two years old in the can we recorded that 2018 2019 it was done and in the can and there was
0: singles that had been, that had been out the year before and the year before that yeah. right
2: some singles as videos and part of a trilogy series and things. And so we're doing some really neat things video wise, but we hadn't released the whole album yet. So you know how much prep goes into that in the, in the promo. And I've got a publicist hired and, and we've had our agent working full time and we've got loaded up March and April dates and summer's just looking banging. And we got all these things and and we hadn't put out a record in, in seven years. And so we were really able to lean on that and call old festivals and call you know, places like, Hey, we got something new that we're really pushing. And, and, you know, and, and also we had those videos that were, that had won some significant awards for us. It was really like propelling our kind of online persona. So when you have this great striking visual material, you can lean to, then people are like, wow, we want to book you. And so our summer was looking amazing. And, uh, and then <laughs> just like that. Right. And you know, so we were like, everybody, well, what do we do? And, I'm literally still sitting on other videos and other material that we've not yet released that we would have released more quickly to keep that ball rolling of touring. But now I'm like, wow, I really have to like space out the things we're doing and releasing and try to get the miles out of it, so to speak, because we can't go tour. We can't go make the revenue that we would normally make. And, and so it, yeah, I don't think anybody saw it coming. We certainly didn't. We, we put it out. Uh, We thought it would be kind of funny on, on a Valentine's day. of all days we're like hey maybe we'll uh make some babies and new relationships out of our our soundtrack you know playing yeah so, <laughs> so yeah, yeah nobody saw that coming at all and uh to, to literally we we're still rescheduling dates that you know <laughs> we're supposed to happen in march we moved it to july and we moved it to december and and now we're moving them again to next year and, and you know so it's the, the fallout will be felt for years from this
0: Sure, sure, and and talk about the album a little bit, pseudonymous. What was what was some of the inspirations behind this? And um, I, I guess when things do level out, whenever that is, what do you still plan to do with it?
2: Well, the the album for me it was a, it was an interesting transition. I had spent all that time learning so many other artists' music, and it really like broadened and opened my own perspectives and my own writing is I could kind of take pieces and parts of other artists sort of work and what I liked or didn't like about, you know, what certain things they were doing and just take these masters and learning, you know, learning 25 Paul Simon tunes. I mean, that's an education in itself mm-hmm. uh, and, like just right there alone. And, and, so learning all of these things, and so I, I had been writing and putting new stuff together on my on my own, just kind of aside from from the band and learning those songs. So I was ready to start putting forth music, and we came out of those tribute shows, and uh, I kind of had a different sort of band than I would had in, in years past because now I'd kind of transitioned from the touring musicians that we then, then we kind of stayed home in, in this cover world, and so I had different musicians that weren't really road guys but they were professional guys like Ryan Sapp um, and at the time I had Damon Wood uh, in my band and he, he was a guitarist for the James Brown band for almost a decade. Uh, these were professional musicians. I had a guy named Andy Reiner, he's still in the band today, but Andy Reiner was a Berklee School of Music graduate uh, in, in fiddle performance and, and just, you know, brilliant musicians that are educated worldly skilled, have toured, seen lots of things And this was my current group my current band that i had so i really wanted to kind of write stuff that was to some of their strengths and what they were good at and not necessarily what i was good at or not necessarily what you know how i would have normally done it so i definitely changed the focus and you put more into funk and blues and jazz uh different genres there's still bluegrass underpinnings Uh, It was also a lot less jammy record than our Roots and Groove record, which was kind of a live studio record in in a lot of regards. We had 11 and 12 minute long songs that were, you know, one one take for the framework of the song. And then, of course, you'd overlay vocals and do polish other stuff. But the framework of how long is that guitar solo in the middle going to go? We don't know. You know, the next album, I hyper produced that album and really narrowed the focus. It's very schizophrenic. It's all over the place in genres and style. Um, a lot of it was written around social issues that were running through my brain at the time. A lot of the the, the shootings that we were having was some of the the themes, uh, kind of some of my own reckonings going through some personal turmoil and relationships in my life. And that's, that's when you always write the best stuff, right? When, when you're kind of struggling or just coming out of a struggle. So that record is a lot different. It's a lot more polished. Um, it's, you know... It's kind of, it was my first producing effort. Having done two albums with Tim, I produced in his style in vain. But one thing that always frustrated me about working in that was that Tim was a working musician with a very busy schedule. And so if I wanted to try something or do something, it was like, all right, you got one chance. Get in there and try it. Okay, that didn't work. We're moving on. You know, he had somewhere to be and something to do. So in this case, I was the producer. It was my money. I'm, I'm paying it. I'm producing it. I'm doing the whole thing. If I want to take 10,000 takes of this, <laughs> we're going to take 10,000 takes of
0: this. Yeah, get it just um, right.
2: Yeah, So that, that, was, that was different. But it was an awesome experience having these incredibly schooled, educated, professional musicians kind of at my fingertips like a chessboard. And I brought in a lot of uh, guests and did a lot of different things. So it's kind of like my proudest and crowning achievement of not only writing and arranging most of all the songs on the record, but producing it, bringing in the different sounds, bringing in the different things, and also trying to keep it on a semi-decent budget, so.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. And, and that, that's neat, though, to get to a point where you're producing your own record and, and calling all the shots. Um, you know, you, you really have the ability there, right, to, how, how pl- to say, how close can I get this song to how I'm hearing it in my head?
2: yeah one one particular story, my my she was my my girlfriend uh, at the time, she my my wife now. but uh, we went into a hardware store because I was looking for chains. I wanted a very specific chain slapping sound on on the floor to start off this song, which ended up which ends up starting off the album. And I'm in the I'm in the hardware store. I was actually in uh, I'm trying to remember which one it was, it might have been Ace hardware. And I'm back by their truck chains and I'm dropping them and people are looking at me and someone in the store comes over and asks me if everything's okay.
0: (laughs) I'm producing a record, just stand back.
2: So, you know, it was quite an embarrassing moment, I think, for everybody involved. But I was like, you know, I'm very specific about what I'm going for here. And, uh, you know, so then I chose the chains that I I wanted and liked, then end up in the studio. It's about 4 a.m., it was middle of January. It's like one of those cold Colorado nights. It's like 10 below and I'm recording down at Silo Sounds in Denver, but Todd Divel's engineering it. And I'm like, hey, I got this chain idea I wanna do. And I hadn't told anybody. <laughs> and so he wheels out like a 150 foot XLR cable. And I'm like, I wanna do it in the alley on concrete near a dumpster, cause I want some
0: reverb. Oh my God.
2: (laughs) He's looking at me like, dude, what are you talking about? So he does, he wheels a mic out there. He wheels a, you know, a headphone extender cable. It's like a hundred foot extension out there. And I'm listening to the track out there and I'm dropping the chains next to the dumpster and recording a dumpster mallet hitting sound and all, all of these things at like 4am drank way too much whiskey. I've already been recording for probably 16 hours that day and uh but that was that was the sound that was the thing and nobody was going to tell me otherwise
0: (laughs) what song was this on
2: this is a track track one called broken rocks
0: Rocks. it's
2: really kind of almost three songs in one it's kind of all over the place but it starts as kind of a a a hymn you think about like an an old-time chain gang type of hymn um that's really the beginnings of it and and that's really you're working on chain gang sort of theme and and uh so so yeah, I'm dropping the rock. I'm dropping that. Um I'm also like 16 of the voices in the chorus. <laughs> and, and then I and then I I hired the black swan singers to come in and uh and and sing a bunch of backup on that as well. And yeah, I was like, no one's gonna tell me otherwise. This could turn out like a pile of crap. Okay. But yeah. I'm gonna try it. If I don't like it, I'll throw it away. But you know, but I, I guess- love
0: that. I love that. That you you had a sound, you said I'm gonna go get it. And now I think everybody that is listening to this podcast is going to press pause and look up Broken Rocks, which is the first track on your new record, Student Anonymous, February 14th, 2020. It's out, folks. They didn't tour on it, and neither did you. <laughs> right. uh, that's great. One thing, and I, I know I'm jumping around a little bit now, one thing I wanted to ask you real quick before we, uh, before we part is what's you you're somebody who's your band's had a booking agent you've had management what's your philosophy on on that um because i know you've also done these things yourself before too and even even with a booking agent i imagine a lot of the stuff that gets booked is through your connections that you've made going out firsthand on the road um what's been your experience with management and booking agents with your group
2: um well you know i mean there's there's my history and experience, and then what I would advise people to do. <laughs> yeah, sure. My Experience was I I did it all all myself early on, um, and made all those connections. And every gig was hustling to talk to whoever was paying the bill. And when can we come back? Was it good? Was it bad? You know, and, and a lot of that networking, um, it gets exhausting. It takes away from the artistry, right? Um, of, of just running the band and, and and doing those things. So, but I recommend that everybody do it for themselves if they can to, to start, because one, it, it costs money, right? Uh, but two, you have an understanding of the process. You understand that it takes 20 emails and maybe a phone call or two to make that happen, make that connection, to convince somebody. Um, you also understand how important it is what your promo kit looks like. You understand that, you know, you need nice, clean video representation of the band. You need these, you know, nice recorded demos and sounds and songs. And, uh, you know, it, you need social media presence. You need to be on all the representative platforms and, and those are the things that someone that's booking looks at. Right. Right. So I, I figured out very early on how important cool promo photos were. So I always invested very heavily in that use the guy here in Fort Collins. He's done every promo shot for the band since 2010, right. uh, a guy named Aaron Morin. Um, and he's got a, a company called summit studios. And he's a Photoshop wizard. He's not even, he would tell you, he's not even a great photographist, uh, a photographer. He's a, he's a Photoshop wizard. Wow. And he does all of our album covers. He, he does all of our work. Uh, but that was important. That's a visually striking thing. Uh, but it's important to understand all the pieces and parts yourself. And then when you do get to a piece and part, there's going to be a natural transition where you're going to have to transition to a small agent. Um, and you're going to, you know, you're going to be kind of bossing them around and telling them what to do. They're not going to have your connections. They're not going to have your history. You have to sit down with that person and give them your history if they're they're a good agent or a good agency. I recommend an agency if you can, unless you just have a friend or someone who has some history in the industry and they just love you and they want to work for you. Um, A lot of big bands, a lot of people find that guy early on. We tried a couple of friends, it didn't quite work out how I wanted to see it work out and, and how they wanted it to work out. And the band had outgrown what they knew. So getting to an agency where there's a roster of people, your your hope is that there's two sides. Yes, I want to take this work off my plate, but two, I wanna get gigs that I wouldn't otherwise get. Right. Otherwise, I'm just, I mean, I could hire an intern and teach them how to send emails as Patrick sites at whitewaterramble.com. Right.
0: And gigs. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and so you're looking to get something more. So a a roster of people, whether they're in your genre or not, they're just opportunities to get in the music world is so wonderful these days that bands will pair up with the oddest, you know, configurations and, that's super cool. So, you know, we were on for the longest time, we were on a, a booking agency with a bunch of reggae and world bands. We were the only jammy band and the only bluegrass band. It paid big dividends for us. It was wonderful. Like, I mean, we got so many weird gigs and weird cool things, but we would have never gotten otherwise. Um, so, you know, just, just things like that. Um, that's kind of the next progression I would say is try to find an agent, even if they're small, everybody wants a huge agency email them all, try to get conversation. They'll look at it and just, you know, whatever. It, a, a bigger agency, they, they want to see major social media numbers. They want to see Spotify plays. They want to see YouTube plays. They want to see tour dates or they just have, absolutely love your music.
0: And now do you have a chance with a booking agent if you don't necessarily have those big numbers, a smaller agent, you don't have big Spotify numbers. You don't have tons of Instagram followers, but you're out doing it and maybe they like your music.
2: Exactly. They got to like your music and they got to like you, right? Yeah. They got to have some faith and trust in you. If they, if they feel like you're going to be here for six months and then you're gone, um, you know, they, they want to feel that passion and that commitment from you as well. Um, and, and, you know, if you can, you can, sow those sort of relationships, maybe you've played with other artists on their roster, you've opened for them. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to open those avenues. I met a lot of booking agents and booking people and managers and tour managers by landing those opening spots for other bands. And then really networking, not just with the band, that's important, but networking their people, who was their publicist, getting on all of those people's radar and things like that. Um, That paid a lot of dividends for me over the years, making those connections, so then you could reach out to that agency and you knew an agent there that you had worked with or two or three agents that you had worked with and so that was a big help in helping me land our our first agent i think we we signed on with crescendo artists down in boulder and at the time they were booking uh they had been booking yonder who had just left their agency but they had just picked up a great american taxi which was vince herman's offshoot project when leftover salmon took a break and green sky blue Grass. Mm-hmm. and we had played shows with Green Sky. We had played shows with Great American Taxi, got to know their booking people so that when I approached them, we weren't just unknown randoms off the street. They would take a meeting with me and I could go sit down with them um, and talk to them. Right? Um, these days, Zoom, right? So yeah, right. You set your eye on a prize and then work towards it. It's going to take more than just sending an email and hoping they love your music. Right. Music, if it really touches home with them, then great. You know, sure. Um, I don't find that happening for tons of people, you know, like put in the work and the effort, get to know them on a different relationship. Who are the other artists they work with, figure out how to get some sort of a date or a tour. That stuff's all obviously hard right now, but th- these are the stepping stones that I took. Yeah, um, sure. then you move to a larger agency and then, then it starts to become tour revenue. You know, how many shows do you play? What was the average tour? What's the average spend? And then you can leverage that when you're trying to talk to your next agency so forth and so on.
0: Yeah. Sure. Well, it- patrick it's been just a pleasure to have you on thanks did i leave out anything is there anything else uh, we need to mention anything else you wanted to say
2: hey man i could do this all day this is this is fun you got time on your hands and you're you're craving some social interaction and especially you know talking about music right so not talking about politics or the pandemic we're talking about music and the music business which i love so this is I, i don't feel like we left anything out uh this this has been great dude
0: well, thank you. And all uh, if, if you will stay on the line with me for another minute, but I'm going to close off the recording now, just by saying, thanks for coming on. We had a great conversation. I feel like, and we'll do it again sometime because, uh, we'll think of a bunch more things as soon as we get off the, as soon as we get off the zoom and uh, that we need to talk about for next time. So thank you so much, brother. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it, man.
0: Well, that was fun. Great convo. Thanks Patrick for coming on. There's going to be links in the show notes where you can listen to Whitewater Ramble, but of course they're on all streaming platforms and you can buy CDs and vinyl online and all that good stuff. Also, their new album, Pseudonymous, came out on February 14th of this year, 2020. And we're going to play out this episode by listening to the track that uh, that he just mentioned in his story about the chains against the cement. It's called Broken Rocks. I really hope you enjoy it. If you like this podcast, please do me a huge favor and rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts, especially on Apple Music. That's a huge help. You can join the community on Patreon at patreon.com slash S Y D O W. And for any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail or death threats or just guest suggestions, you can send those to me at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Here's Broken Rocks by Whitewater Ramble.